So I'm uh, very proud to introduce Dr. Whitney High. Um, he's actually a dermatopathologist in Denver, Colorado, so I actually work directly with um, Dr. High, and uh, he has many um, overachievements. He's a, he is the associate professor right now at the University of Colorado, and uh, he graduated from Mayo Clinic School of Medicine, um, completed residency in Denver, um, oh sorry, completed residency in, actually here um, at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center, and then he did fellowship at Denver in dermatopathology. Um, he has authored over 70 articles, 20 chapters, and three books in dermatology and dermatopathology. Um, and recently at the Vegas conference, I don't know if anyone went to that, he was awarded the best lecturer. Um, he also has a master's in chemical engineering and his law degree. So please welcome, yeah, amazing. And his free time, and he has two little kids, that baby yesterday was his new baby. So please welcome Dr. High. He's got excellent talks. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank, thank you very much. So uh, my name is Whitney High. That's my real name. And I, I am a man. Uh, I've always been a man. Uh, that's usually a problem at these events. Uh, so uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, do a, a little bit of an unusual talk. I, I speak uh, kind of frequently in different places, um, but this is one, uh, this is a new talk, a talk I've never given before. And it's kind of a combination of three different talks that I have given before. So we're going to try to talk about common skin cancers and then kind of uh, orient things from the basis of a dermatopathologist. As Dr. Pandya mentioned several times, you know, dermatopathologists are kind of unique. Uh, there's actually two routes to becoming a dermatopathologist. You can be a dermatologist and go through additional training, or you can be a pathologist and go through extra training, but you end up in the same place. It's just one is infinitely superior, and uh, so that's the dermatologist. So uh, let, let's go ahead and uh, uh, start here. I, I don't have any real conflicts of interest uh, to disclose or anything like that. Uh, so we don't have a whole bunch of time to talk about things from a dermatopathologist perspective, so I thought I'd just talk about really the five major things that we all encounter in our daily practice. One kind of being a, quote, pre-cancer to most people, that's actinic keratosis. And then the other things being uh, squamous cell carcinoma in situ, uh, mel uh, squamous cell carcinoma, uh, basal cell carcinoma, and melanoma, kind of the big five. Uh, so precancerous conditions, at least for most people, include really actinic keratoses, which are also called by some people solar keratoses. And, you know, they're certainly the most common sun-induced uh, neoplasm out there, and, you know, we all know where to expect those uh, on the body. And we all know that they're also often very subtle. You can sometimes feel them more as rough spots than you can see them. Um, but histologically, you know, they usually consist uh, of just kind of so this atypia, which is a word that's thrown around a whole bunch, and I find that different people understand it to mean different things. Uh, but the, it's these keratinocytes down here, which are kind of too purple, too crowded, too big, everything else, and then they produce this overlying parakeratosis, and that parakeratosis is, of course, what you perceive as scale. Uh, and sometimes that parakeratosis can involve uh, the intervening space between adnexal structures, but it's just skin that doesn't look quite right, but it doesn't quite yet look like any other kind of, of real frank cancer that we'll look at in a moment. Um, so there's these continuums of disease, which in other areas are very widely accepted. You know, like if you think back to medical school or PA school, it's very, very well accepted that GI cancers go from like a normal colon, they take a few genetic hits and they become kind of hyperproliferative, they take a few more genetic hits and they become adenomas and then they eventuate, if you're unfortunate, as a carcinoma and that's very well accepted. And I mean, I went to medical school 10, 12 years ago, that was taught to me and it was all mapped out and known at the time. But the truth of the matter is that actinic keratosis probably undergo some genetic hits, become full thickness squamous cell carcinoma in situ, undergo more genetic hits and more advancement, and eventuate a squamous cell carcinoma. And that makes my job as a dermatopathologist kind of hard sometimes. In fact, we, we joke around about how, how hard it can be sometimes to distinguish a, an inflamed seborrheic keratosis from a squamous cell carcinoma in situ and things like that. Because, well, you know, if you look at the, the top of some things, it might appear one way, and then you look at the bottom and it might appear another. So is this man dressed up? Is he casual? On, on TV, he probably looks dressed up. Um, but is he casual? Is he something in between? And the same thing really holds true uh, for actinic keratoses and squamous cell carcinoma in situ and everything else, and I'm not sure that's always appreciated. 
So sometimes we act as if, you know, there's a distinct bin of actinic keratosis, and that's decidedly different from a distinct bin of squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and that's decidedly different from frank invasive squamous cell carcinoma. But the truth of the matter is often they're just a straight continuum of actinic keratosis, squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and frank squamous cell carcinoma, and deciding which one is which is actually harder than you think sometimes, like the man in the suit. Is he dressed up, or is he casual, or is he something in between? Um, so Dr. Ackerman, Bernie Ackerman, has anybody ever heard of Bernie Ackerman? He passed away lately, um, but he was probably the most, one of the most prominent uh, dermatopathologist that ever was, and he was, of course, a dermatologist as well. And, and so, you know, we, we used to, I used to spend some of my training time with him. And, you know, he just got, a, got this great idea, you know, after 40 years of being frustrated, as we all are, with deciding, well, this one's sort of a hypertrophic AK, and this one's sort of a Bowen's disease. And uh, he, he decided, well, I'm just going to call them all squamous cell carcinoma. I'm going to call AKs. I'm going to call everything squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And I was there uh, when, when he decided to do that. And that lasted a couple weeks before all his clients called and were enormously uh, unhappy with his little thought experiment there. Um, because everybody likes, you know, billable 702.0, uh, 232.3, all, all those different things. Are, are Everyone wants it that way. But the truth of the matter, and something you should always be aware of as the person performing the biopsy, is it's not really in truth that clear sometimes. And, and so we've, we've kind of invented little fudge factors, and different dermat dermatopathologists handle it differently. But, you know, there's hypertrophic AKs where you're extremely concerned that that's a squamous cell carcinoma, and you'd probably do a biopsy for that reason. But if you do a shallow biopsy, it might be very, very hard to tell if that's not the top of of an invasive squamous cell carcinoma. Or you might get a, a biopsy back that says something like actinic keratosis with follicular extension or advanced actinic keratosis is something we have here in Texas when I was a trainee that doesn't exist in Colorado at all. If you told a Colorado dermatologist this is an advanced actinic keratosis, he wouldn't know what you were talking about and he would call your office as a dermatopathologist and let you know. Uh, there's also boanoid actinic keratosis, but there's little translations. If somebody tells you this is an actinic keratosis with follicular extension, what they're trying to tell you is this might not be so responsive to topical management. It has cells going down follicles where it might be hard to get to. And advanced actinic keratosis, we're trying to tell you it's getting pretty close to Bowen's disease. I might keep a closer eye on this patient or on this site. And boanoid papulosis, or boanoid actinic keratosis, excuse me, is really just saying, well, guys, for all intents and purposes, this is a very, very tiny squamous cell carcinoma in situ, and, and please note that. So well, there's, there's things that the dermatopathologist is trying to convey to you when we use those kinds of terms, because the truth of the matter is, it is a continuum. It's not decidedly distinct bins, even though uh, it's nicer to bill in that manner. Uh, so, of course, you know, I have to speak quickly about treatment because it's in the title, but I'm not going to delve too deeply into this. You know, we treat them with topical regimens, 5-fluorouracil, amiquimod, diclofenac, PDT, all those different things that you're all very familiar with. You know, 5-fluorouracil, you obviously have to have a very compliant, willing patient because you look like a lobster man uh, if you do it correctly. And it's probably, as we used to say in Texas, against the Geneva Convention to do it during the summertime uh, and things like that. And so we really only do those things, at least in Colorado, during the wintertime and not during the summer and things like that. And we all understand why. Same thing with Aldera, or now there's, since March or so, there's, or maybe even May, they, they came out with Zyclera, which is really just a lower strength Aldera. And, and, you know, the two different drugs have slightly different regimens. One is twice a week for 16 weeks, at least as recommended. And the other one's two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, on a daily basis. But they're really actually the same medication, just kind of marketed slightly differently. And the truth of the matter is they're marketed slightly differently because everybody was using them differently to begin with. Some people were using Aldera two times a week, some were using it three times a week, some were using it four times a week. And all the manufacturer really did was just decide, well, a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. Let's take some of the better ideas and create additional uh, indications for our product. Solar A's is something I use on my law school buddies. Uh, and I do that on purpose because it's, it's very mild uh, compared to Aldera or uh, 5-FU. Uh, yet it does do something, but it doesn't uh, send them off the deep end. So I, I definitely use that in all the people that have an interest in plaintiff's uh, attorney law. Uh, so. 
one thing that I'm often asked by patients and, and by practitioners is, well, what if I do nothing about these actinic keratoses? What happens? Some of them probably go on to be squamous cell carcinoma, but it's never really been decided how many do. Uh, the original study, just so that you can seem educated and, and, and thorough in the topic, you can always say the Mark study, the Mark study, the Mark study. She was uh, one of the first people who was a nurse in, in, in England that actually looked at this uh, first, and they found a conversion uh, of about one in a thousand goes on to be a squamous cell carcinoma. Most practicing dermatologists thought, well, no, no, that's too low. Uh, and, and then some other people have, have, done, have found as many as one in 12 or 8% or so. And so people say, well, gosh, that seems too high. So, so the real number we use at the University of Colorado is maybe about a one in 20 to one in 40 will become a squamous cell carcinoma. But it's certainly not like you go to bed one night with this very tiny scaly papule and you wake up the next morning with this fungating mass. So I always try to impress upon my patients that this is a continuum uh, and things that are going to eventuate as a squamous cell carcinoma usually behave as such. They fail treatment, they get larger, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's pre-cancers, but again, really in truth, they were probably, Bernie probably has a point, there were probably cancers all along uh, that just started out at an earlier point and were controlled by the body. So we do call them pre-cancers, but yet uh, there's certainly not enough consensus to call, for example, atypical nevi pre-cancers. You really probably shouldn't, or at least you'll get in huge debates over the subject if you do. Um, but yet again, we probably hypothesize that there is a genetic continuum between atypical nevi and melanoma. So pre-cancer is, is always in the eye of the beholder, I guess. Moving on to non-melanoma skin cancer, you have squamous cell carcinoma in situ, often called Bowen's disease. And what the difference is from the dermatopathologist's perspective here, instead of just being kind of crowded atypical cells along the dermoepidermal junction, you have this full thickness atypia. And depending on the area of the body, you might even call it erythroplasia of quarat, or you might call it bowenoid papulosis, but it's this full thickness, top to bottom, side to side, atypia of the epithelium, and that's really the difference. So it really is something that's kind of progressed beyond an actinic keratosis to now involve the full thickness of the epithelium, and that's what the dermatopathologist is trying to convey to you through his report. And you, you might treat those in a lot of the same way because, again, like Bernie said, it's probably all continuous disease. So you might use topical management, 5-FU, amiquimod, whatever you prefer. Uh, you might do destructive modalities. You might do uh, PDT. Uh, you might even do excision now, although certainly some plastic surgeons excise actinic keratoses, whether they mean to or not. Uh, so excision is, is an option as well. Um, but uh, sometimes the, the dermatopathologist will say squamous cell carcinoma in situ with follicular extension in many areas of the country. And sometimes I get phone calls even by dermatologists as to, well, what do you mean? I mean exactly that. I mean, the, the cells are tracking down the adnexa, and what I'm trying to convey to you is just like we talked about AKs with follicular extension, this might be a, a situation where you're going to have a higher chance of recurrence. It's not, probably not a patient you should send out the door and you'll never see them again, and it might be uh, a place where you ponder a little bit more, maybe I should do an excision. Uh, instead of just doing a topical treatment. And, and so it, and now it's pretty popular and I think probably appropriate to, to tell somebody if your squamous cell carcinoma in situ has follicular extension or not. Bonoid papulosis. Uh, bonoid papulosis is just a special kind of squamous cell carcinoma in situ in the genital area, and it's associated with HPV 16 and 18, the bad actors uh, of the uh, uh, sexually tran transmitted HPV family. Uh, but it looks a little bit different from the picture I just showed you of squamous cell carcinoma in situ. It kind of has random atypical cells. Here's a huge cell right here. Here's a huge cell right here. So it has these random atypical cells. has preservation of the granular layer, which is a sign of differentiation in the skin. So it doesn't look visually as bad as did squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And in truth, as a person who practiced, I'm one of the only people that has credentials at the STD clinic uh, that's run by the CDC in Denver. I'm the only non-infectious disease doctor there. In truth, I always say to, to everybody else there, it doesn't behave like squamous cell carcinoma in situ either. It generally follows a more innocuous course. And, and, and so we've all accepted that those are cases that we can kind of treat with destructive modalities, with amiquimod, with things like that. Of course you want to have close clinical follow-up, but you don't have to, you know, proceed uh, straight to penectomy or anything like that uh, for, for Bowen's disease. It's a little bit better uh, disease to have, but it is a cancer nonetheless. 
Uh, the other interesting thing is sometimes people uh, get phone calls from, from clients that say, well, you know, the guy's only 26 and you're giving him boanoid papulosis, but the average age of boanoid papulosis is 31, so 26 is not that unusual. So boanoid papulosis is a disease that you might expect in your younger patients. You might accept that they are younger and yet that's the correct diagnosis. And then moving further now, we've talked about kind of little minimal atypia to the basilar cells, the germinative layer of the skin. We've talked about full thickness atypia uh, of the epidermis. And now we're talking about something that we're going to talk about squamous cell carcinoma. We're talking about something that goes frankly down into the skin and becomes invasive. And that's really the only difference. Again, probably a spectrum of disease all along. Uh, and squamous cell carcinoma is uh, the number one is, uh, cancer on the, on, the, on the mucosa and the hands and feet. It, Normally, on most people, uh, basal cell carcinoma is four to five times more common everywhere on the body with two exceptions, the mucosa and the hands and feet, where the squamous cell carcinoma completely inverts, and it's four to five times more likely than basal cell carcinoma in those areas. And certainly you can identify, Dr. Pandya used to work with uh, these patients when I was a resident here, um, you can identify certain populations like like uh, renal transplant patients, where you know they're going to be particularly predisposed to squamous cell carcinoma, and everybody's been kind of interested in why would that be. It actually turns out that azathioprine not only immunosuppresses you, but it actually probably form, forms some kind of photoadduct. This was in the New England Journal not that long ago, that actually potentiates squamous cell carcinoma as well. So there's multiple reasons why immunosuppressed patients on azathioprine have this very, very high risk of squamous cell carcinoma, sometimes even justifying use of prophylactic measures like, like putting them on an oral retinoid to prevent squamous cell carcinoma. So that's an important thing to be aware of and explain to the patient. In fact, in some countries, more, pe more renal transplant patients die of squamous cell carcinoma than they do of graft failure or infection or anything else. In the Scandinavian countries, for example, it's squamous cell carcinoma is the number one killer of transplant patients, and that's an important thing to realize. So we've talked about the, the killer nature of frank squamous cell carcinoma, and most people do kind of have this little spiel that they do to patients where you have basal cell, the lowliest cancer, you have melanoma, the most horrible cancer, then you have squamous cell carcinoma in the middle, and that works really good, especially in a uh, crazy clinic environment to explain to patients. But the truth of the matter is that there are kinds of squamous cell carcinoma that are, from a dermatopathologist perspective, which is the title of this talk, are much more likely to be killers and metastatic behaviors than, than are your typical squamous cell carcinoma. For example, your typical squamous cell carcinoma just occurring on the mid-forearm of a heavily sun-damaged patient, that's extremely unlikely to ever be metastatic. The, the squamous cell carcinomas that are more concerning to us are those that are on the lip, on the ear, that arise within a, a, an ulcer of long-standing uh, basis, like a, a margillin's ulcer, those are called. Those are the squamous cell carcinomas that have a, an infinitely higher risk of becoming metastatic. The other thing that's very, very important is, well, how deep is the squamous cell carcinoma? And you can envision that the actually dermatopathologists are starting to consider reporting depth on squamous cell carcinoma, and some actually already do. It's not considered the standard of care yet like it is with melanoma, but there might be a day in your future as a practicing clinician where we'll just give you a depth of squamous cell carcinoma just like we do for melanoma. So again, the major factors that you always want to consider in a squamous cell carcinoma is a lip and an ear. I certainly have a lower threshold uh, when I make a diagnosis under the microscope for squamous cell carcinoma in that area, and I try to convey that to my patients when I'm seeing them clinically as well. I'm much more worried about squamous cell carcinoma in those areas. Margillin's ulcers have a huge risk of metastatic disease. And then the other things you always want to keep in mind, and, 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 and speaking as an attorney also, you want to make good documentation of, is how big is the lesion? Is it bigger than two centimeters? That's a much more worrisome squamous cell carcinoma than is uh, a smaller lesion. And in truth, one of the things I find the residents do poorly, almost universally, when they come to our residency training program, is document the size of anything. <laughs> they often just write papule, bump, plaque, and that allows me later down the line as the plaintiff's attorney to speculate as to what the size was because nobody ever wrote it down. Uh, so, so, so really, uh, uh, the size is important. Uh, and then the last thing the dermatopathologist should always be telling you is, is it poor, moderately, or well differentiated? And there's different uh, conventions of thought, what is moderate, what is uh, poor, what is uh, well differentiated. But the important point is that we're trying to convey some information back to you about what we think uh, the risk of this tumor is.
And then another thing that I often sit there, and this is actually how I say it uh, to my other dermatopathologists, is I can't decide whether to dink this person or not. And what I mean is I often get a biopsy on a, on a scalp like this, and I, I call it a squam or Bowen's or something that's an indication for surgery. And then the, uh, the person goes back and does surgery, and they cut into like 17 other uh, lesions. And, and I, my heart goes out to you. Again, I'm a dermatology dermatopathologist. I was a dermatologist first and became a dermatopathologist. So you don't have to tell me how hard it is. I've lived it. I, I've done it all. So, so, so I understand that this is a hard situation, but I, I spend a lot of time under the microscope deciding, well, am I going to call this just a positive margin of squamous cell carcinoma, or am I going to try to parse it out? And, and for my clients in Denver, I generally try to parse it out. I try to say, well, removed from the area of the scar, there appears to be a second uh, you know, insert in the blank, actinic keratosis, Bowen's disease, anything but invasive disease, hopefully I'll try to parse out if I truly can convince myself that it's removed from the area of the scar because I know full well from being a clinician uh, what they're dealing with. Um, but often that justifies explaining to the patient, gosh, you have, and explaining in your medical legal note, uh, that you have a, a field effect is the big buzzword to use now. There's a field effect of general damage in this area. And you know, you, you have a high likelihood, sir, of having another squamous cell carcinoma, even if we've completely removed this now. And we might want to consider field treatment uh, down the line after you recover from the surgery, or we might want to follow you more closely because you do have a gamish uh, of different lesions, you know, uh, and it's hard to say where the onion ends and the pickle begins and the tomato stops uh, on occasion, as it were. This is another thing that I've actually seen as, a, as the attorney in me uh, be, uh, become a problem on occasion. So there's this entity called Verrucous Carcinoma, and here's one that I saw when I was a resident at Dallas. And this person had had this lesion nine years or so. They'd been to a bunch of different dermatologists in town uh, and hadn't got any straightforward answers. And in their record, they had a biopsy report fairly recently saying, oh, it's just a Verruca, it's just a Verruca. Well, this just a Verruca had actually borne through the entire person's foot and popped out the other side. So it clearly wasn't just a Veruca. So you might think, well, how does the dermatopathologist think that this is just a Veruca? Because the Veruca's carcinoma is a very serious thing, a very a source of medical legal uh, claims on occasion. Well, I think what happens is this. The thing I'd like you to remember is Veruca's carcinoma is identified by its architecture, not by its cytology. It doesn't look that horribly malignant cell by cell by cell. But yet, when you look at the overall architecture, you can see that it's deeply invading. These are the squamous islands deeply invading the skin. So what do you think happens to the poor dermatopathologist? Well, in our very, very crazy, busy clinics, and again, I'm a clinician too, uh, we do a shave biopsy, and we lop off about that much of the lesion. And we say, uh, or even our MA says, we don't even bother to do it ourselves. Rule out Veruca because you know, the MA is just kind of listening to you talk and rule out Veruca sounds good. He goes to the dermatopathologist and just this part of it without all this architecture down here looks like a Veruca. So I look down at the path sheet and I say, well, what's, what's, uh, what's Claire want? Uh, she wants Veruca. Boy, it looks like a Veruca to me, consistent with Veruca or, or maybe even worse yet, I just say Veruca. And what's, what's worrisome is, you know, people accept path reports as if they're like a stone tablet in a burning bush, you know. If Dr. High said that it was a Veruca, then by God, it's a Veruca. And then only someplace down the line, like when that patient came to see me, does somebody say, I've never seen a 12-centimeter Veruca that po pokes through the top of your foot. Um, so, you know, what, what I always want to encourage you guys, and I, I encourage my clients in Denver, I never mind phone calls. I don't mind if you call me three or four times about the same case. And, and even if the fourth time I'm kind of clenched through clenched teeth saying, oh, great, no, I don't mind at all. I really truly don't mind because you have to have that communication going back and forth. And if somebody would have told these other dermatopathologists before that the lesion was 12 centimeters wide and poking out the foot, they never would have agreed to the uh, preliminary diagnosis of rule out wart. Uh, but you can all see how it happens. So, so be aware of that. Hold that in the back of your brain somewhere and share it with other people when it comes up. Uh, Keratoacanthoma, I, I think they're handled a little bit differently in Texas, but in Denver, we consider them all to be squamous cell carcinoma, comma, keratoacanthoma type. 
And that's because when cratoecanthoma was first described, many of the lesions involuted, they were generally superficial, the patient did very, very well, and they were thought to be kind of a follicularly-based uh, atypical squamous process. Well, lo and behold, over time, uh, this one's way down here in the fat. There's been reports of metastatic behavior and everything else. So the growing trend is simply to call them carotoacanthoma squamous cell, or squamous cell carcinoma comma carotoacanthoma type. And certainly I would encourage you to treat them closer to squamous cell carcinoma than anything else uh, except in unusual circumstances. So we talked about actinic keratosis, we've talked about Bowen's disease, and we've talked about squamous cell carcinoma, and we now hold in our mind that it's really a continuum of disease. Uh, sampling size, all those things may impact the actual diagnosis. But now we have basal cell carcinoma, which is actually the most common cancer in the whole world. Uh, and it is a little bit different than, than a, a squamous cell carcinoma process. It has an extremely low chance of metastatic behavior, and even when it does become metastatic, it's generally by, through direct growth to a lymph node and things like that. Uh, and we certainly know that basal cell carcinoma, more than squamous cell carcinoma, is associated with intermittent sun exposure. And it has generally uh, the classic ones, at least, this pearly telangiectatic quality that's somewhat different from the hyperkeratotic scaly quality of squamous cell carcinoma. Um, but there's other cool things you can share with patients, like uh, there was a study once that showed it took about eight years for a basal cell carcinoma to grow from a single cell to something that you could see with the naked eye. So I always share that with patients and say, guys, this has been here you know, a decade or more, and you were just not aware of it. Uh, so, so they're extremely slow growing. They exist in kind of this strange dichotomy with the immune system. The immune system's almost able to get rid of them, but not quite, which is why amiquamod is so helpful in that situation. And they have a very low risk of metastatic behavior. But the growing trend, and there actually is one dermatologist in Denver who still doesn't do this, but all the rest of us do, is to give you a growth pattern. And the growth pattern's important because it impacts treatment. In particular, there's been a move lately to lump all these, morpheiform, micronodular, infiltrative, desmoplastic, into a single growth pattern and simply just call it infiltrative because they're all indications for Mohs or more aggressive treatment. And, and in truth, I would support that. If, if they took, a, took it to a vote at an ASDP meeting, I would raise my hand because it is uh, burdensome to decide, well, gosh, is this one more infiltrative and more, or morpheiform? And in the end, it doesn't really matter. It's that, like ag arguing over the price of, of butter in China. It truly doesn't matter. You're trying to communicate that this isn't a superficial and this isn't a nodular. In fact, it might be acceptable just to say that. Basal cell carcinoma, not superficial, not nodular, might be just as effective. Uh, here's a superficial basal cell carcinoma, and you can see the atypical basaloid islands. This is your cancer right here dangling from the surface. This is a special stain called Barep 4, which is useful for basal cell carcinoma, and it highlights the lesion there. And you can see how amenable that would be to, to treatment. Uh, amiquimod is what we use for superficial basal cell carcinoma, and, and particularly it's gaining favor with things like young women. Every, it seems like every year I diagnose more and more basal cell carcinomas in 26-year-olds, 23-year-olds, 25-year-olds. Uh, and on the chest, this works fantastic. We have been doing it for many, many, I've been doing it for a decade now. Morpheiform basal cell carcinoma can be quite hard. I mean, that certainly looks like a scar, and if the patient told you it was a scar, you could be seriously misled but it's actually a scar-like basal cell carcinoma, a very, very tricky thing for, for both the dermatologist and the dermatopathologist. But again, I said basal cell carcinoma is a cancer. And sometimes patients and even doctors are kind of cavalier about following up on it. I'm pretty, pretty thorough about sending registered letters to my patients and actually send both a registered letter and a regular letter so that they can't claim that they didn't pick up the registered letter. Uh, so I always send both. But basal cell carcinoma is a cancer. And on rare occasion, now if you've never seen it, you can say you have. This basal cell carcinoma killed a patient. This was a patient at Parkland Hospital when I was a resident. Came to this doctor right here. Uh, but uh, she was a, a Christian scientist of some kind. She had a basal cell carcinoma for around 14 years. And I, you can be a pathologist, general pathologist here with me. This is the basal cell carcinoma, and this is the brain. So eventually, over time, the basal cell carcinoma just ate through the skull and pushed on the brain. The patient died of basal cell carcinoma. So it does happen. It is a cancer, and something does need to be done about it. So in summary, uh, for basal cell, the most important thing is to remember you got the most options at your disposal for superficial basal cell carcinoma. For nodular, 
you know, you probably don't want to do a Mikulmat except in very rare circumstances for a very specific reason. I recently did a huge review article on intralesional management of basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma that might be useful on occasion. Um, but really, again, I think that eventually maybe it'd be nice to just lump morpheiform, micronods, or all those others into just simply infiltrating patterns uh, that, that require some other kind of treatment beyond Aldera or Miquimod or, or even simple surgery and really lend themselves more to micrographic removal if it's available. <clears throat> so now we'll move on to melanoma here uh, with a slightly different focus. I'm just going to go ahead and just, oh, shoot, I went too far. So we all know there are different kinds of melanoma. There's superficial spreading melanoma, which is, you know, used to be thought of as the most common kind and probably is uh, for most people. This is a superficial spreading melanoma with a variegated color, the large size. And in the epidermis, you see all these melanoma cells, which are the clear-looking ones, spreading out. This has a radial growth phase. That's a good, favorable thing. Here's a nodular melanoma a big old nodule growing vertical into the skin. It's even causing the lateral epidermal reedy here to turn inward from the rapidity of the growth. Uh, so a less favorable thing. There's lentigo maligna, which is now by some author's studies, such as Dirk Elston, the most common form of melanoma. Um, but it's a melanoma that's more likely to grow contiguously along the dermal epidermal junction and track down adnexal structures. Uh, and we see a lot of that, and some people think we actually overcall lentigo maligna, and that that's why it's surging in popularity right now. Uh, and then there's acral lentiginous melanoma, which is the one that, that's most common on, on the uh, hands and feet, particularly of people uh, of skin of color. And this is a person who's basically their whole entire nail is brown, as is their nail fold, which is called Hutchinson's sign. Uh, and that's a sign of a more worrisome melanocytic process. And here's the melanoma growing in the acral skin. So those subtypes used to be very, very, very important. But if you read, read the literature closely, particularly uh, maybe two or three years ago in the New England Journal, there was an article by Boris Bastian, a friend of mine in, in San Francisco, who actually found that more important than these subtypes is actually the genetic hits that your melanoma has undergone. And I think the growing trend in my lifetime and your lifetime too will be to largely abandon these classic types and look more at the genetic hits that a melanoma has taken uh, along the route and decide your treatment and the prognosis based on that. And that day is coming. Right now, we don't really have that widely available. We're just starting to, to, to play around with fish studies, fluorescent in situ hybridization for melanoma. But one thing we do do now is we have these five immunostains. And I might just share this information with you because one thing I find that's frustrating for the PAs, at least in Denver, is they, they feel like they don't know enough dermatopathology. And you're getting a lot of information back in those reports that maybe doesn't have any frame of reference for you. We've actually even thought of doing a course in dermatopathology for, for the, the PAs. But S100 is a stain you'll hear of sometimes. It's considered the most sensitive stain for melanoma. HMB45 is considered to be a less sensitive stain, but more specific stain. And there's kind of a pattern of staining we can look for in melanocytic processes that I might convey to you in a path report as being a more favorable pattern. So I'm going to show that to you in just a minute. And then there's Milan A, which is probably considered the most specific stain for melanocytes. If that's positive, it's very, very likely that it is melanocytic in nature and nothing else. And then very, very recently have, has been the more increased use of two stains, P16 and Key 67. P16 is a, um, um, a genomic protector. When it's expressed, it's a sign that the cell is trying to stop its growth. It's, a, it's trying to put the brakes on its growth. So it's trying to stop itself from becoming a cancer, if you will. And so the expression of P16 is a favorable thing. So you might start to see more and more pathology reports with P16 was favorable or P16 was expressed. And in fact, if nuclear positivity of P16 is expressed, that's a very favorable thing. And the last one's very straightforward, but also rather new, is that we now have a proliferative marker called Key 67 And cells that are turning over stain with this marker. And cells that are turning over rapidly, and many cells that are turning over rapidly, is, of course, as you might expect, a bad thing. 
So here's a, a melanoma, and you'll just have to take my word for it, but it has a whole bunch of different clones of cells. It has a, a big, huge lobule right here. It seems to have this hypercellular area right here. It's got morphologic clones. That's how I'm using it, not in the genetic sense, but it's got morphologic clones. And sure enough, if you stain that with Milan A, considered the most specific marker again, for melanocytes in most purposes. Uh, you have staining of these lobules, these lobules, but not staining here. And so you can see that an S100 stain brings out those cells that are more spindled in appearance. And they actually are a different kind of melanoma called a desmoplastic component or a spindled component. But they don't stain with this stain, but they do stain with this. And hence, you'll notice that really practical, prudent dermatopathologists never do just one stain. That's suicidal. I've seen too many mistakes go down like that. You always want to do several stains, because one might not work, and the other does and catches you. So it's, it's very, very rare to do just one stain unless you're setting yourself up for disaster. Here's HMB45. This is a normal pattern of HMB45 expression with the cells in the top expressing HMB45 and it being lost or diminished with descent. So if you read that now in a pathology report of a different difficult pigmented lesion, you'll know what they're talking about. They're talking about a normal pattern of staining superficially and diminished staining uh, deep, which is a favorable pattern that mitigates in favor of benignity and mitigates against melanoma. It's not absolute, or we'd call it the melanoma stain, but it's helpful. This is P16, again, nuclear expression and cytoplasmic expression, the dark brown color, is a favorable thing. This was something we were trying to decide, is it a Spitz nevus or is it a melanoma? So is it, is it benign or is it malignant, really, essentially? And this P16 expression is a favorable thing. You might start to see that ever increasing in reports, particularly of difficult melanocytic lesions. And then uh, the key 67, the proliferative index. You can see that the skin is always turning over. So these basal or keratinocytes always serve as an internal control so that you know your stain worked. Yet you don't see a lot of dark red down here in the nevus cells. So this is a favorable thing. That's what your dermatopathologist is talking about, a low proliferative index. So now you can assign a visual image to what they type to you in the report. This is a melanoma, on the other hand. All these cells are melanoma cells, and all these red dots are nuclei that are undergoing proliferation. That's a bad pattern, bad, bad, bad. And then we got fancy at the University of Colorado, and we got tired of deciding what is a, a, a melanocyte and what, what is some other cell that's turning over and it's not really germane to the problem at hand. So this is a double stain. And so the red is melan A, showing you that the cell is a melanocyte. And the brown is key 67, the proliferative marker, and show, it's showing you that too many cells, too many red cells, are also brown. That's a double stain. Too many red cells are also brown. And hence, those melanocytes are proliferating. That's a bad sign. So those are the things that you'll see in a difficult report. But the truth of the matter is that there are lesions for which nobody has a right answer. And in fact, this is, these are things you should be able to counsel your patients on, I think. For example, uh, you know, there's, there's poor agreement uh, with regard to grading, melan uh, grading uh, atypical nevi. Not everyone agrees on A, the need to grade, although we do in Denver. And then even worse, not everybody agrees on what's mild, what's moderate, what's severe. And in one embarrassing study, the famous study by Peepcorn, he sent uh, a bunch of lesions to dermatopathologists, expert dermatopathologists, had them grade them and told them that he would send them more and he tricked them, he just sent them the same ones six months later. And so he actually looked at how often did they agree with themselves. And they only agreed with themselves about 60, 65, 68% of the time. So the, the person would change from mild to moderate, moderate to mild, moderate to severe. Hence, so there's not even good intra-observer agreement on occasion. And then certainly with regard to melanomas, they, they did a very famous study once where they sent 37 melanomas to 11 experts. And they could only agree on 11 cases uh, of, with unanimity for melanoma. So at least one expert felt that some of those weren't melanomas. Uh, so it's very, very important. Again, this gets to the stone tablet and the burning bush. Uh, melanoma is a black art. Pigmented lesions are a black art. And so each day when I go to work, I try to be Goldilocks. And it doesn't always work. But I try to be just right, not too malignant, not too benign. I try to be just right every single day. 
and it doesn't always work. Because uh, reality is the worst game of all. And, and, and in fact, uh, everyone probably has errors in their file room that they're not even aware of. So uh, sometimes we step aside of this argument by coming up with things like stump or meltump or atypical melanocytic proliferation, AMP. And, and so we come up with these acronymical dermatopathology terms to basically say we don't really know. And one, one, uh, one that's very, very popular is Spitz tumor. Notice they changed the name, not Spitz nevus. They're saying Spitz tumor of uncertain malignant potential. Here's an example of one. This was a 17-year-old girl who had uh, a new lesion erupt over just a few weeks. A 17-year-old girl again. Here's the lesion. Yeah, you'll just have to take my word for it. This is huge, several centimeters wide, extremely deep, extremely concerning, and has that eruptive growth has these big spitzoid cells, these cells with copious cytoplasm, slightly spindled. And we looked at this at Colorado and we found mitotic figures, we found all kinds of concerning features, but there also seem to be some structures like camino bodies, which is a favorable spitz type of feature. Here's mitotic figures, extremely deep. This thing would have been eight, nine millimeters in depth. Uh, and it turns out that this is something that's, that, that's getting reported more and more. I really try to refrain. I probably only do it three or four times a year. Give a diagnosis of atypical melanocytic proliferation or meltump, whereas other dermatopathologists probably do it three or four times by lunch. But we really make an effort at Colorado to try to give you some kind of diagnosis. But every once in a while, you just say, gosh, I really don't know what the biologic potential is this. I, read, I repeated that three and a half times throughout the report. I referenced other people that this, this is the type of lesion that behaves in a manner less, than aggressive, less aggressive than conventional melanoma, but it certainly may not be benign, or at least not wholly benign. And so they elected to do a sentinel lymph node, and lo and behold, there were two or three cells in the sentinel lymph node. The patient's still alive, still doing fantastically. Uh, I don't know what she has exactly, and I'm being dead honest with you. There are lesions for which nobody really truly knows. And the more they profess to know, if you have somebody who comes in after me and professes to know, they're lying to you. <laughs> so the most important thing is to be real honest, have that good communication. Remember the Verrucus carcinoma thing. Don't just let your MA say rule out wart and you give this little dinky shave. And you know, I, I, I'm a clinician. I understand how, how quickly patients move and talk and, and how quickly everything needs to be done. Um, but you always want to have that good communication. And so the, the trend, the growing trend in melanoma is to do this synoptic reporting, which means like a little summary of everything that's going on with the melanoma. And the goal is to make the pathology very uh, understandable. No matter who you are and what your brain capacity is, you can understand what's going on. So here's an example of a synoptic report. And, and this is what it means by synoptic. It gives you all this information that may impact the prognosis in a very clear, concise manner. You have to go to just one place to get all that information. So let's look at what kind of information is there. Not everyone has adopted it. This is a, a less synoptic report. It's just, uh, you know, just melanoma, just depth, uh, everything else sort of typed out in, in less of a clear and visual fashion. So how does a synoptic report help you? There are certain things you always want to discuss with every patient. One is like the depth of the lesion, measured at a right, a right angle from the granule layer or from the base of the ulceration to the deepest cells. Now, there's also some rules for doing it follicularly as well, but uh, the point is that that is probably the single most important prognostic factor, bar none. Always probably will be. Ulceration first became uh, important in 2002, remains important in the latest guidelines. And so it's not only good to note and discuss with the patient if there is ulceration, but also how broad is the ulceration. Is it just kind of little foci here and there, or is it a big, broad area? Mitotic activity is the new thing. It's new to the 2009 guidelines, and it's actually taken away what have I not mentioned. Clark level. Clark level is now almost superfluous. There's one circumstance where you use Clark level, but it's almost superfluous, and many institutions, including the, the, what I consider the best institutions, simply don't even report it anymore at all. 
Uh, but mitotic activity is now zoomed up in importance, and so that's something you want to look for in every report. It turns out it's kind of funny in that the, the uh, discriminator finally is it's either greater than one or less than one, which means zero, uh, but it, it's, it's basically greater than one per millimeter squared or less than one mil per millimeter squared for all practical purposes. So any mitotic activity generally, unless it's a very large lesion, would be bad. Uh, growth phase, again, uh, we talked about how we used to learn melanoma, and even me, 12 years ago in medical school, used to learn acral intiginous, superficial spreading, lentigo malignant, and all that's starting to take a back seat now. Um, but one thing that still seems to be important is, is the, is the lesion growing radially, or is the lesion growing vertically? And that pro pretty much covers uh, Breslow depth as well. And then tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. It's certainly not of the importance of the other things that we've already talked about, um, but uh, it, it's thought that basically if your immune system is taking an aggressive interest in the melanoma, then that's a favorable thing. Regression also, I try to communicate to people when there's extensive regression, but there's no agreement on exactly how, there's two proposals, no agreement on exactly how to report that, but also an important thing that you should be looking for. So to protect your patients, this is how we're going to end, you want to protect yourself as well, because if you, if you get sued, it's a miserable experience for everyone, the patient, for you, for your family, everything else, and you're probably less effective in helping all your other patients. So uh, by protecting yourself, you're protecting patients, and unfortunately, melanoma is, is the single most common cause of all pathology claims uh, against physicians, all pathology claims, right up there with breast cancer. And in fact, if you look at the data from Colorado, which is an attorney upholded, uh, here you have missed melanoma as the single most common lawsuit against dermatologists. When I just search the records for lawsuits and the word dermatologist, missed melanoma is the most common cause. You know, there's other things in there, light therapy, things like that. I even, I think, yeah, isotretinoin was a pretty common cause. Uh, but uh, missed melanoma, very, very, very important. Uh, so you might think, well, but lawsuits are pretty infrequent, and that's true. There's a very famous study from Harvard that uh, only about 1 in 25 patients is hurt from a medical error in any capacity, which maybe sounds high to you, but only 1 in 25 of those injured patients actually follow up with a suit. So that's 1 in 625 people uh, actually make a lawsuit. So you might say, well, gosh, you know, lawsuits are pretty infrequent, and that's true, but, you know, like 1.5 million animals cross the Serengeti every day, uh, your wildebeest and zebras. Um, uh, but if anyone is singled out by uh, a, a tiger, or lion, or, a, or a, a hippopotamus, it's no less trying to, to the individual that's targeted. They can't say, oh, well, gosh, but it's so rare. Uh, you're, you're, you're pretty much upset uh, about the whole deal. So you do want to be careful. And, and I think the two uh, points that I leave you with is methods of sampling are important. You know, I, I certainly realize, and I, I recently reviewed a chapter that we asked a derm uh, pathologist, dermatopathologist, to write for Bologna's book, and, and basically I redid the entire thing. Because basically the way he had the thing written, if it was pigmented, you had to do an excisional biopsy. That would last, you, you basically see about four patients, five patients the first day, maybe four or five the next day, and then from that point on, you'd only be doing excisions, basically, for the rest of your career. Uh, so saucerization is very, very legitimate. You just want to always pick uh, the right rule to follow, because here's a funny, humorous case. It's actually a true case. Uh, it was a family practitioner who was told, well, when you look at a pigmented lesion, always biopsy the thickest part. Uh, and, and so they, they followed that rule, you know, a little bit of knowledge is dangerous. They said, oh, well, here's a worrisome pigmented lesion, and boy, by God, here's the thickest part, so I'm going to biopsy that. And they, they got a diagnosis of a nevus when, in fact, they missed this huge melanoma, resulted in a lawsuit. So, uh, again, you always got to consider what is the representative nature of the sampling. Uh, shaves, deep shaves are also called saucerizations, provide a tremendous amount of material uh, for inspection. And in fact, if you ever get harassed, like Kaiser was harassing some of our dermatologists that are clients of mine, uh, there's, there's actually literature out there to show that a deep shave gives almost as much information as does an excision, and that quieted uh, the committees at Kaiser when we put that study forward. Also, this is something that happened just the other day. Uh, uh, surgeons will try to tell you, well, an excision destroys the utility of the sentinel lymph node. That's absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. Uh, the only thing that it destroys the uh, value of the sentinel lymph node is, is too great of undermining, extensive undermining, or rotation flaps. 
but just a simple excision will, will never uh, uh, leave you open to a claim that you've somehow destroyed the value of sitting a lymph node. And then you always want to work as a team with your uh, uh, dermatologist because there's a very simple rule in, der in dermatopathology and all of pathology for that matter. Garbage in is garbage out. If you put garbage into the system, I'm not going to be able to, you can't buff a turd, we used to say. I can't, I can't make a turd look good. So, so if you put it into the system bad, I can't help you. And these people, I say this everywhere I talk. I talk two times a month somewhere in the country, sometimes out of the country. I say it everywhere I go. If you put crap in, I, you're going to get crap out. And if you do things like rule out melanoma blindly on every single pigmented lesion, if you write rule out cancer or 238.2, you're going to seriously impair your dermatopathologist's ability to decide what do they really think of this lesion? How concerned are they really about this lesion? And you're setting yourself up for all kinds of confusion. Think what happens when I look at a pigmented lesion under the microscope and I look down on the path form and it says rash. I worry, is this even the right specimen? I've got to make now four phone calls to, to my own lab, to you, to everyone else, just to figure out, well, gosh, is this somebody else's specimen that's in the wrong bottle, or did my lab embed the wrong specimen, or anything else? So always try to communicate good clinical information. Even if it takes an extra second, you're going to value that extra second when you're named as a co-defendant in some kind of action. Uh, the, the last thing I'll, I'll introduce is this concept of lichenoid inflammatory pseudonesting. This is a very, very new thing that's being described, and it happened to me recently, so I want to share it with you. So this is a good history. 63-year-old helicopter pilot with a brown plaque on the neck, and they wrote rule out melanoma versus other. All of that was contained in the clinical description, which for Denver, that's like a, that's like a novella uh, of information. So, so, you know, that's like got a plot, a protagonist. I was very, very pleased. I, you know, it was like a tr Hollywood treatment. Um, and here, here's the biopsy, and this is a special stain called a, a Milan A stain, which I told you is the what? The most specific stain for melanocytes. So I'm looking at this stain, and I see nested cells along the dermal epidermal junction. I'm thinking 63-year-old helicopter pilot. And all that sun in the canopy, he's an older guy, he's got a pigmented lesion on his neck that the clinician believes is melanoma. So I took this to consensus uh, a panel at the university where all of us dermatopathologists are, and I said, gosh, I'm worried about this concept called pseudonesting. Do you think this is really melanoma? And the other three doctors said, every day of the week, every day of the week. They said, what are you, what are you even worried about? So I signed it out as melanoma in situ. I got this call. Would it matter to you that it was kind of purple colored? Oh, and he also had another sim uh, smaller lesion on the opposite neck. And I said, yes, can I see that patient? That matters to me a lot. And so here's our 63-year-old helicopter pilot. Doesn't look anything like melanoma. This is inflammatory pseudonesting. It's a new thing that I happened to read about. Again, I even knew it was out there, and I still fell into the trap. Uh, they look like nests of melanocytes, but they're not. And they even stain with melan A. Uh, but they're not. Uh, so, so again, uh, good communication uh, between me and the, the uh, client. Now she provided something that she hadn't provided before. Oh, he's got multiple of them and they're sort of purple. They're not brown like my MA wrote down. They're actually kind of purple. Uh, and so this person uh, avoided a huge, huge disaster um, because had uh, that person really had an, a large excision done of that entire lesion, and then somebody smarter along the way said, this doesn't look like melanoma to me. Uh, she and I both would have really uh, had, had one of those moments that, yeah, those were the droids we were looking for. Yeah, shoot. That, that was uh, very, very discoverable. So you always want to have that good communication. If I could leave, leave you on any note, uh, the important thing is to always share information both directions. That's really a key to good, careful management. And you, you met my wife, uh, uh, Dr. Miller, yesterday. And, uh, some of you probably, Madison ran into you in the hallway uh, there. So I'll just leave you on that note. Thanks so much for your time and attention. Yes, ma'am. Recently, I've been getting back um, path reports in the last week or so from our dermatopathologist that say spreading actinic keratosis. Spread. I haven't had a chance to call him. Can you talk Gosh, about that? Gosh, I've never, like I said, you know, uh, I've seen all kinds of different cheats 
uh, cheats uh, made up for actinic keratoses like, like advanced, uh, you know, boanoid, uh, things like that. I've never come across spreading actinic keratosis. Uh, it's a new one for me. Um, maybe they're trying to communicate some other kind of concern, but certainly all actinic keratoses are kind of in a field of solar damage, and hence, in my mind, they're always kind of spreading, but that's the first time I've ever encountered that term. In the differential diagnosis, um, sometimes we send off specimens simply because the patient wants it removed for cosmetic reasons mm -hmm. or CYA. And we're pretty sure it's a certain diagnosis. Is it okay to put in parentheses favored for the diagnosis that mm. you feel that it is? It's absolutely fine. Okay. Uh, other people will just establish, they'll Favorite. call me uh, and they say, Wit, you know, I just wanted to have this phone call with you. And by the way, anytime I write, rule out atypical melanocytic proliferation, uh, it's a cosmetic biopsy. Okay. And, and, and uh, they, they, I, just, I just write in my little notebook, anytime Dr. <laughs> such and such says atypical melanocytic proliferation, he's saying it's a cosmetic lesion. And you know, I, just, I just have that good two-way communication, like uh, Claire, Claire and I talk probably three, three times a week about something or other. Uh, on the phone, all my clients have my cell phone number, they call me day, night, with any kind of concern, and, and so I know what they're thinking, and, and I try to get them out of the habit of just writing rule out melanoma for everything because it gives me no background. But if you say parentheses, I really am worried about this, I would give you the, that is fantastic. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Uh, that was a great lecture, by the way. I mean, it was just Thanks. awesome. Um, I actually have two questions. Sure. Um, on the special stains that you discussed, do those also apply for amelanotic melanoma? Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. So amelanotic melanoma is something that, uh, you know, I have some examples in a longer talk that I do exclusively. This one was called skin cancer, so I had to, had to basically combine a whole bunch of talks <laughs> to meet the title that was given to me. But in my longer talk on just melanoma, we cover things like nevoid melanoma and amelanotic melanoma. The stains are extremely helpful for nevoid melanoma, and I have a couple uh, cases of amelanotic melanoma where stains have been quite, quite helpful. Okay, and then on the second question, have you seen a rise in amelanotic melanoma as of late? No, I haven't seen uh, an unusual number, at least in Denver. I've seen the, the same number I've seen, you know, basically every year since I've, I've uh, been practicing. The only thing that I've seen maybe rise in our area is a lower threshold for, as I said, lentigo maligna. Um, and, and some people think we have maybe too low of a threshold now for lentigo malignant. But I haven't noticed any difference in amelanotic melanoma. Maybe you're on the cutting edge of a, an epidemiologic well, outbreak. Well, I live in southwest Florida, and just in, I'd say in the last six to eight months that we've had an incredible amount of amelanotic melanoma. Uh, um, as you know, in fact, I had a patient it was a brand new patient that had just come in about three weeks ago, and she had a significant amount of sun damage on her face, and I biopsied five lesions that were red, rough, scaly, very hallmark of squame. All of them were superficial spreading. They were in all different locations on the face. <clears throat> I'm losing my voice, odd. but yeah, and, and then I also biopsied several on her arm, superficial spreading. It, I mean, they look like squamous cell carcinomas. So just Gosh, uh, I don't have an explanation for that. The only, only caveat I might throw on is, you know, when, when weird stuff happens, it's always good to, Keep to call looking. and say, you know, human beings are typing those reports, human beings are embedding that tissue, uh, labeling those blocks, labeling those slides, and, you know, again, Well, we even sent them off, good. you know, the, to a different pathologist, you know, for a second opinion, uh -huh. and it was all the same. Huh, interesting. Yeah. I don't have an explanation for that. I wish I could hear Bernie Ackerman talk about comment on spreading actinic keratosis. Wouldn't you love to hear that? <laughs> yes. He's like, how would you know they're spreading? Anyway, if, if you're not, I've heard the local pathologists comment on how much they hate it when we put rule out melanoma. But if we really want to rule out melanoma, what you're saying is just don't overuse it? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, if you really have a concern, even a, even a modest concern about melanoma, I'd like to know about it. Um, because, because like the, the other woman in front of you said, sometimes 
you know, if you even have a slight concern of melanoma, it might really change my opinion or make me look longer or shorter at something or, or order a stain where I normally wouldn't. Uh, I have a, you know, we run this course in Colorado called Melanoma in the Mountains where we show you really crazy melanomas and I, I show you some that I bar just barely caught. Honestly, on a bad day, I might have missed it. Uh, and so, so I do want to know, I just don't want to see rule out melanoma on every pigmented lesion because it's like the little boy that cries wolf. If every IDN comes in as rule out melanoma, then it, it quickly it means nothing to me anymore. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thanks. Um, a couple times a year, I um, get this diagnosis of a, you know, a hedge on a trichoepithelioma on a cosmetically critical area like the nose or uh -huh. the ear or a lip and there's still some residual lesion. Now, would you recommend that I go back and re-biopsy it, cut it out, send them to the Mohs surgeon? I mean, what are you looking at, and why is it such a hedgy diagnosis? Trichoepitheliomas are hard. Uh, uh, every once in a while, you get a trichoepithelioma in a, a person, let's say, older than 50, a person that really should have basal cell carcinoma, and, and, and you sit there and, and you wonder, is this a basal cell carcinoma that's just extraordinarily bland, or it, which happens, or is this a trichoepithelioma? And the, the management is different uh, to, to a great degree. So that's a hard problem. There are four stains that sometimes you can use to get, get out, of, out of that problem. Uh, you can look for CK20 positive Merkel cells admixed within the basaloid islands. And if they're there, that, that's probably a sign of benignity. You can look for CD34 positive stroma surrounding the islands. Uh, and if it's there, uh, that, that's a sign of benignity. Um, and you can do P53 and P67 stains to look for genetically abnormal expressions of those uh, proteins or high pro uh, proliferative index. But there are cases where, where we struggle, and I think the most important thing is to get two dermatopathologists to agree what it is. Uh, I, really, I really worry about those dermatopathologists that are practicing in complete isolation uh, and they have only their opinion to go on because one of the huge things that I like is I have, you know, uh, three, four other people every single day that I can say, what do you think about this? Um, because there's something to be said for, another, for several different prudent dermatopathologists to say, gosh, it's a toughie, but I'm going to go down with basal cell. Uh, and then you're really protecting the patient the best, I think. So four stains and, and a second opinion. I think before you make, you got a $170, $200 second opinion versus a several hundred dollar surgery and a lifelong scar. I might even ask my dermatopathologist, say, I just like a second opinion, even though I trust you completely, I just like a second opinion. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering how um, helpful clinical photographs are to you. We, um, you know, our dermatopathologist is always very thankful and grateful for photographs, but I don't know if she's just humoring me. And you know, now with the iPhone, it's just so easy, and I can literally email her from the room. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know legally if that's a problem with HIPAA stuff, but I also, I don't know if she really truly wants to be bombarded with all of these photographs that are going to coincide with the biopsy coming. For, yeah, they're great. In fact, we like those uh, a lot. Sure, every once in a while you get one that you, you think, gosh, you know, I hope that person didn't go to a lot of trouble. But more often than not, they're helpful. And for the HIPAA thing, you should send them encrypted. Um, but other than that, uh, and you know, most software Outlook will encrypt things if it's the downward blue arrow. Blue arrow. But uh, no, it's a great idea. And there's, there's actually studies to suggest that pigmented lesions are diagnosed more reliably with photograph. Thank you. I have uh, two questions, actually. So we who were just talking. Um, I, my name is Claire. <laughs> I'm from Colorado. <laughs> See, yeah, I'm the one good, who calls you every night at midnight, yeah. <laughs> asking about a patient. Um, so we were talking about uh, excising melanomas. So when you, you have a patient come in with a large lesion that you're like, I'm positive this is a melanoma, or you know, it looks very suspicious. Mm -hmm. um, at my last practice, we would do a couple punch biopsies. Mm -hmm. The current practice, we excise. With two millimeter margins. Yeah, with two or, or even five and leave it open. And then others um, do an excisional biopsy within the lips and then they close it. But I thought if you close it, um, which may be a question for the melanoma surgeon, but I heard this from my neighbor who's a melanoma surgeon. She said Nicole, that it makes sure. the sentinel node more difficult because then you have a larger area that you've closed. And then if they go back in and cut, then 
or an the studies would suggest, you know, that, that very famous study that I showed, they actually closed the wound uh, after an excision with, uh, with a, uh, of a melanoma, what was identified later as a melanoma. It didn't affect lymph node drainage. It didn't. Drainage. So would you close? And, you know, the, the hardest thing to do is to, to convince the doctor of that. Yeah. Um, but again, it's been, uh, the surgeons, you know, they have that surgeon mentality, which is really great, and it's protecting them and their patients when it's two in the morning and they're going after your spleen or something. Right. But the, the data shows that it does not impact sentinel lymph node. So you could uh, close if you're not. As long as you don't not... do two things. Yeah. And, and, that, and any attorney would look in the note to see if you did. Uh, you didn't do extensive undermining, and you didn't oh, do a good. rotation flap. See, then that's the problem, because if, if you close a lot of these, you have to do extensive undermining, mm -hmm. which would then... If you feel like you're going to do, the... quote, extensive undermining, everybody's definition of extensive might vary a little bit, but if you're truly going to do something that you consider to be above and beyond just simple undermining, then it's probably a better idea to leave it open. So and what do you recommend? That, what do you think is a good sampling, though? I mean, obviously the whole lesion's a better one, but is a couple punches a, of... A... a few punches would be better than one. And, and really some, you know, it's, it's a black, just like diagnosing melanoma is a black art, being a good clinician is a black art that comes with years of experience. And, and you know, uh, thinking, gosh, you know, there's some kind of gray hues over here, and the dermatos der dermatoscopy looked weird over here. And, and, but, but certainly the more tissue put into the system, the, the more uh, you're going to get out. I saw a very unfortunate case uh, not that long ago where the person did a two and a half millimeter punch biopsy. Uh, from a, a four centimeter lesion, uh, and it was read as a junctionally atypical nevus, and I agree that based on that sampling, it was a junctionally atypical nevus. That woman's now dying of her, her larger metastatic melanoma. Uh, so, so, you know, and that was done by a, a, a dermatologist and PA working together uh, on the issue. And uh, so, it, it, good, garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, well, one, one other quick question, um, nevus sebaceous. Would you uh, do a punch, or would you would you even biopsy those now? Uh, Nevus sebaceous might I might my my uh, opinion might be impacted by a how old is the person because you know nevus sebaceous really doesn't turn turn on full well until you get the proper adrenergic milieu and everything. Um, but um, you know nevus sebaceous is kind of a controversial thing even even among pediatric dermatopathologists as yeah. to where you whether you need to remove the whole thing for its potential neoplasms that could arise in it, or whether you just let it be until it does something strange, right. uh, like uh, get a big nodule in this end that, that it doesn't have down at this end. But uh, the, the only caveat with nevus sebaceous is it's really hard to distinguish between nevus sebaceous <laughs> and a simple epidermal nevus if you do a shave. Okay. So I wouldn't do a shave. I might do a punch. I might do an excision, but I wouldn't do a shave because part of nevus sebaceous, the diagnosis comes from seeing the apocrine structures, it's a hamartoma really, it's, right. a, it's a, an organoid nevus, and so you need to see the deeper aspects of it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. All right, am I, am I uh, done? Oh, last question, sir? Okay, thank you, Dr. Hine. Um, I'm from southern Michigan, and we um, often receive a report, melanoma in situ, we'll do the excision margins, and then have the patient follow up at the University of Michigan Melanoma Clinic. Mm -hmm. Their pathologists will read it as um, atypical junctional melanocytic hyperplasia, tell the patient, you don't have melanoma. Mm. Patient comes back to us a little confused or upset, mm -hmm. and you know, we explain, well, they would still tell you it would be treated the same and everything. Any insight into that? Yeah, that is rough. You know, I'm not a huge fan of acronymical dermatopathology. Uh, I don't really like Meltump or Sampus or, or all those different things because I think you know, does it happen a few times a year that I use those? But I agree with you that th that's a situation where they've kind of undermined your trust with the patient by, by just interjecting a very vague uh, diagnosis. What is an atypical melanocytic proliferation? Well, I don't, I don't honestly know, uh, which is why I try not to use it. Um, but uh, um, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a tough situation, especially when you're, you know, the, the university is bestowing that honor. You know, there's, there's certainly a, a power behind the name. Um, so I don't know how to deal with that except tell, like you just did, that, uh, those come off with the same exact margins that does melanoma in situ. So that's just a, a little bit of a Weasley uh, diagnosis, and I, I think you took the right track. All right. I better get out of here so the other speaker can uh, talk. But.